To follow Jesus, church, is to submit our fears and our failures and our misconceptions about him to him and then trust that he's able to do work on our behalf. He's able to feed a multitude with a lunch and he's able uh, to walk on the very water that threatens our lives. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. Today we continue our series, Jesus Is, through the Gospel of John. We hope you enjoy the study of God's Word. So John chapter 6, I want to open this morning with a a quote from a a book written by Michael Horton. Uh, It's called The Agony of Deceit. And in that book, uh, he writes these words. He says, even an atheist, Franz Kafka, recognized the importance of satisfying his own spiritual hunger. Uh, In his short story, A Hunger Artist, Kafka summed up his thoughts. He wanted his other works burned, but uh, insisted that this one story be saved. In a typically bizarre fashion, Kafka has the hunger artist making his living by professional fasting. He's the practitioner of a once venerated profession. Seated on straw in his small barred cage, he is marveled at by throngs of people. After 40 days, his fasts were terminated in triumph. His manager would make a speech, the band would play, and one of the ladies would lead him staggering in his weakened state out of the cage. However, the day arrived when fasting was no longer understood or appreciated by the people. He lost his manager and had to join a circus. His cage was placed next to the animals. He became depressed by the smell, the restlessness of the animals at night, the raw flesh carried past him, and the roaring at feeding time. The people barely glanced at him in their hurry to see the animals. Even the circus attendants failed to limit his fast by counting the days. Finally, he was discovered lying in the straw, and in his dying breaths, he told his secret. I have to fast, he whispered. I can't help it. I couldn't find the food I liked. If I had found it, believe me, I should have made no fuss and stuffed myself like you or anyone else. Michael Horton goes on to say, Kafka was a writer of parables, and the parable of the hunger artist is not about physical hunger, but about spiritual hunger. Kafka himself was the hunger artist and realized that he was starving to death spiritually, but couldn't find any food that he liked. Wow. Today we're in John chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at two miracles that are performed by Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, and when Jesus walked on water on the Sea of Galilee. But what we're going to see here today is more than Jesus merely feeding hungry bellies. We're we're actually going to learn an important spiritual truth this morning, church, and that is that Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is sufficient to not only meet, but even exceed all of our needs. Not merely our physical needs, which there are many various needs here today. If we spent time sharing, and we shared some of the needs among us last week medically, if we were just to take a minute and go one by one, share the needs that you have today, we would be here for uh, probably four or five hours uh, listening to every shoreliner and the physical needs they have. But see, Jesus is here to meet our spiritual needs. And so as you look in John chapter 6, most of you have a heading above chapter 6 that should say something like feeding the 5,000. This is a very important miracle. Uh, This miracle is found in all four gospel accounts. On the screen, here's where they're mentioned. They're mentioned in Matthew chapter 14. It's mentioned in Mark chapter 6. 
in Luke chapter 9 and here in John chapter 6. And so that makes this miracle, listen, incredibly important if all four gospel writers include it. Charles Spurgeon said that it's in all four gospels so that none of us will forget uh, how much the Lord can do with little things that are yielded to him. I like that. And we'll come back to that thought later. So the feeding of the 5,000, it's the most public of all Jesus's miracles. Whereas the walking on water is possibly the most private, where only the disciples are affected. Uh, in this miracle of the 5,000, Jesus creates something ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. If you think about it, um, Jesus speaks the bread, he prays for it, and basically it comes out of nothing, it comes from nothing. And up until now, Jesus has turned water into wine, but he had water to begin with. Uh, he healed a little boy uh, from afar who was sick, but yet Jesus had an immune system to work with. Uh, remember Jesus a few weeks ago in John chapter five, he raises up the man who for 38 years had been lame, but he had tendons and muscles uh, and, a, and a, a physical body to kind of uh, use and heal and restore. And so in contrast here, Jesus in this miracle is gonna multiply and create bread and fish from a very small amount. And so in the end result, there's more than what was started with. Uh, and so we're gonna see his power over creation, not only there, but also as he walks on water and overcomes the laws of physics and comes out to his disciples on the boat. And so what we're gonna learn today, some great lessons as we study this section of scripture. And this is, listen, gonna set the tone for the next few weeks as we look at John chapter six and understand that Jesus himself is the bread of life. Uh, to, to open this up this morning, someone said this, there will always be a deficit if you look to mammon and not the master, amen? If you have your eyes fixed on the lack of provision that you have today, you're always gonna have that deficit. You're always gonna be discouraged. Rather than keeping your eyes on the one who is the provider, the one who is Jehovah Jireh. And so what we're gonna see today in the next few weeks is that Jesus is sufficient to not just meet, but to exceed all of our needs. And that's really our outline today. If you're taking note, uh, I'm gonna put it on the screen or there, it's already there. You can snap a photo of this or jot it down. We're gonna learn today that Jesus is sufficient, first of all, to perceive our need. He knows what we need in verses one through five. And then not only that, but he's sufficient to provide for our needs, verses six through 11. In the midst of our struggle and our trial and our difficulty, Jesus is sufficient to preserve us and to preserve his glory and the gospel integrity in our lives, verses 12 through 15. And Jesus is sufficient when we go through storms to protect us, not from the storm, but in the storm, okay? So that's where we're going today. Uh, let's look at verse one. Look at verse one with me. It says, after these Things. Would you guys circle that phrase? After these things. Maybe you got a handout Bible. Maybe you're following along in the Bible app. That's great. But I want you to somehow highlight or circle those words. After these things. After what things? Well, uh, we saw last uh, time Jesus was in Jerusalem at the pool of Bethesda. And, and now he's a far uh, way away. A long way away. He's now in northern Israel. So chapter 5, many people believe he's at a feast and they think it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, and here in this chapter, verse four, we see the Passover feast. And so from the Feast of Tabernacles to the Passover, it's about six months of time. So this is far in distance and far in time from chapter five. Uh, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, we see that Jesus needed to get away with his disciples and they wanted to go to a deserted place. They wanted to get away from everyone. I don't know where that would be in our 
our territory here, and they just need to get out away from the people. So they stayed away from UTC. They stayed away, well, I guess there's no one at the beach now uh, in the last few weeks. Um, but they went to a deserted place. We gotta get away from people, away from the crowds. And I believe that may have been the time frame where John the Baptist was uh, beheaded. And so Jesus was actually wanting to get away from the pace of ministry and just mourn the loss of uh, his friend. Uh, we know that John the Baptist, if you know your Bibles, he was beheaded uh, at the request of uh, Herodias's daughter. Uh, and Herod Antipas was basically um, stuck, and so uh, he was basically put to death. And so I believe Jesus was mourning and wanting to get away with his disciples. And here we learn in verse 1, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, uh, and it's also called the Sea of Tiberias. Um, Tiberias, by the way, was founded by the same Herod who killed John the Baptist. So it's the same uh, time frame. This is on the western shore of um, the Sea of Galilee. I think we have a picture of Tiberias um, right on the shore there, and it was named after the Roman emperor Tiberius. So Jesus is now most likely on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to get away with his disciples, to just get, get some time. If you've had a loss of a loved one, you just need some time to process and mourn. And so I believe that's what he's doing. And notice what happens next in verse two. It says, then a great multitude followed him because, and that's an important word, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there sat with his disciples. So uh, real quick, have your attention. The verb in verse two for followed him means they continued to follow him. They kept following him. Why? John tells us because of his miracles, not his message. They wanted to see him do something for them rather than to see him. They wanted, as some people say, they wanted the hand of God, not the face of God. They had the wrong motives. And so the people, if they're heading to the Passover in verse four, they would have been heading through this area and they would have said, oh, that's Jesus. Let's stop and see if we can get something from him. I pray we don't do that as we come together on Sundays. I'm just here to get, kind of get something from Jesus. Does he have anything for me today? Uh, and so they're here for a miracle, for food maybe. So look at verse four. It says, now the Passover, a feast of the Jews was near. And then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? All right, so if we look at all four gospel accounts of this story, we learn a few cool details that are filled in. We have kind of all four eyewitness accounts. We put it all together in one comprehensive idea. And so the first thing we know is that your heading is inaccurate. Your heading says feeding of the 5,000. Okay, this tells us, um, Matthew and John, that these were 5,000 men, all right? If there were wives with them, if their children were with them, then we could more accurately say this is about 15,000 to 20,000 people. This is more than 5,000 men. So uh, even if there were, though, five people instead of 5,000 or 20,000, this still would have been a miracle. Uh, Luke mentions that the day had worn out. So this is a very late part of the day. It's probably around 3 p.m. or 5 p.m. It's late in the day. So the people are getting hungry. It's almost dinner time uh, and, or supper time. Which one do we use? Do you guys use supper or do you use dinner? It, it was in the evening. It was in that kind of afternoon stomach. Hunger pangs are starting to, starting to growl. So you're ready to eat. So this is in that evening. And they're remotely in the middle of nowhere. And so it says here, I love this, that Jesus, verse five, lifted up his eyes. He lifted up his eyes. Most of the time when he did that, it was to pray. 
But I see Jesus here lifting up his eyes and perceiving three things. So if you're taking note, this is under our first point here, but three ideas under this first point. Jesus, number one, perceives the motives of those who claim to be following him in verse two. Uh, It says that they followed him because of the signs. And so Jesus was able to perceive why they were following him. He understands our motives. And anytime someone supposedly is following Jesus, there's different levels of commitment. And these particular people are only following Jesus to get something from him. And so Jesus perceives what they are there for. He understands why they're there. And today he has the same perception. He understands today if you're here maybe to get the girl or you're here maybe to check off your spiritual duty of the week or you're here maybe to look good in front of other people, he understands that need. Or if your motive is I just wanna glorify the Lord, I wanna be equipped and I just love Jesus and I'm glad to be here. He knows the motives that we have this morning. Secondly though, on the screen, Jesus perceives the need of those serving him to get away with him. Uh, remember, Jesus has just probably heard about John the Baptist's death. And so he's asked his disciples, let's get away. Let's just get alone and let's rest a little while. Uh, Mark's gospel explains that the ministry work had become so exhausting. Listen, the disciples didn't even have an opportunity to eat. I don't know if you've been that busy at work where you can't even take a lunch break. Well, that's their ministry. They were so busy. They're like, we can't even eat at this point. We've got so many demands in the ministry that we're becoming exhausted. They're neglecting their own bodies for the sake of the people who had needs around them. And so Jesus encouraged them to get away and get refreshed. And so they get in the boat and they set out across the Sea of Galilee and the people saw where their trajectory was and they ran around to meet them there. And so when they get off the boat, Mark tells us that there's a huge crowd waiting for them. No rest for the weary. Uh, Jesus understands the need that those of us in ministry have to get rest. Many of you are here today and you're serving in ministry and Jesus understands there's gotta be a time of rest and a time of refreshment. And that does not mean I gotta take a week off of ministry every, every month or every other week or I should just kinda scale back. That means that in the midst of the ministry, there's gotta be times of regular refreshment and regular time of just soaking in the word of God and waiting on the Lord and seeking him. This week I read some really scary stats and this should cause you to pray for me and for our elders and for other pastors because this scared me a little bit. Look at this on the screen. Did you know this, this is week I read this, 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every month due to three things, moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention in their churches, 1,500 a month. If we add that up, that's, that's horrific. 80% of pastors and 84% of their spouses feel unqualified and discouraged in their role as a pastor or a family uh, in ministry. Now, there can be a number of reasons why this is happening, but if we're having normative times of rest and refreshment, we stay close to the Lord, we're seeking him, then this shouldn't be happening to that degree. Uh, Jesus perceives the needs of those who are serving him, and he knows we need that time of rest. I'm, I'm so thankful for our ministry team here uh, at Shoreline uh, and our elders and our deacons who bear a lot of the ministry loads so that, so that I can take days off every week. That's a good thing to have a day off. Um, there's no day off as a pastor. Like it's not like, oh, I'm just clocking out today. I don't need to pray. I don't need to be a man of God. We don't have that luxury. But to be able to rest, uh, have vacation time, have date nights, have a little time with family, go to conferences and get equipped and rebuilt, those are important things. And all of us need that. We all need Uh, those days off and times of refreshment. So Jesus perceives that need, but thirdly, on the screen, 
Jesus also perceives the needs of those who follow him. You may not be in ministry vocationally or, or just when you're able to, but you're following him, and Jesus, as he lifts his eyes up, sees this crowd of people. Uh, we all have different eyes, and if I were to show you, I will right now, a, a, a crowd of people, that's about five to 15,000 people, a, a picture. I want to show you the amount of people that Jesus was about to, to minister to. And we all, when we look at a crowd of people, we all look at them with different eyes. And I don't mean brown, blue, or hazel. When we look at a crowd of people, we all see something different. As you look up there, where's Waldo? No, I don't think he's there. As we look at that, if you're a, if you're a beautician, you may look at that crowd, and if we were to zoom in, you would see people uh, who have good skin and some who have bad skin. You're like, I need a clinical with her, all right? Uh, some of you who are personal trainers, you look at a crowd of people, and you go, wow, all right, uh, I see some people who need to work out, and uh, uh, they really need to get into the gym. Present company excluded, of course. We're the church that meets at the Y, so we're, we're good to go. Uh, a style expert would look at a crowd of people, and they'd see some name brands and some knockoffs, and like, that guy's shopping at the thrift store, and he's smart, all right? Uh, single guys, they have different eyes. They would look at a crowd, and they'd look for the ladies who are attractive, and they're looking for that ring on the left finger, and if it's not there, going for it, right? So we all have different eyes. When Jesus looks at a crowd of people, listen, Jesus sees something different. Jesus perceives a need that we don't see. We, as the DC Talk song goes, sometimes we, we aren't colorblind. So sadly, we see race, or we see socioeconomic status, or we see someone is not an American, they're, they're a refugee. We see someone, oh, look at the clothes they're wearing. And, and we have that as, it really keeps us in blindness. But when Jesus sees a crowd of people, as he sees this crowd, he sees, listen, a sheep, a group of sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus realizes these people can't defend themselves against predators. They're gonna have a hard time finding food and water, and I wanna meet that need. And so the other gospel writers tell us right here, this is why I'm telling you this, that right at this moment, Jesus lifts up his eyes and begins to teach them. The deeper need is not that they get fed something physical, but that they would be fed something spiritual. The deeper need uh, is spiritual truth, not bread that satisfies physical hunger. And even so this morning, Jesus today knows our motives. He knows where we're at spiritually. He knows what our needs are, uh, not just spiritually, but physically. And so I love this. Jesus turns to Philip, and he goes, hey, Philip. So uh, where, where would we buy bread in this area? Again, Philip is from this area. This is nearby his area. And so look at our second point this morning. Jesus is sufficient to provide, verse six. Okay? We learn in verse six that Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. I love that. I love that Jesus already knew what he was gonna do. He's just testing him. He's just proving him. Love this. And notice what... Um, uh, we're gonna see Jesus testing them a little bit later in this chapter as well, but notice Philip's solution. Did you guys read it when Micah read it earlier, verse seven? Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little, okay? 200 denarii is not sufficient. That's Philip's solution, okay? Um, that, by the way, if you're taking note, that would have been about 200 days worth of wages for a peasant, or in our today current vernacular, maybe about $4,000, so he's like, even if we had four grand in our bank account that Judas is keeping, we still wouldn't have enough money to feed every single person uh, a meal here today. 
Jesus, we, we could go to Publix right now and, and we could get a bunch of subs, but listen, we don't have enough money to meet the need that's in front of us. Now, is that, let me just get your poll this morning. Nod your heads yes or no. Is that the right way of thinking? Is Philip thinking correctly, yes or no? What do you think? Someone's not nodding their head, yeah. Do you guys understand the question? Uh, is this correct? Is he right for thinking that? Like, oh yeah, I just need money. Just money solves our issues. Or is that not the right solution? I call this the Philip mentality. On the screen, here's the Philip mentality. More money equals less problems, okay? I just need more money and I got less problems. No problem, okay? Now, this is funny. The Philip mentality is funny. Why? Because we could always use more money to accomplish things. We could always use more money, sure. Uh, I mean, honestly. Uh, but the reality is that many of us don't understand that God is able to provide even when it seems like there's a lack. And many of us share the Philip mentality. And here's, where it go- here's how it goes. Like, oh, as soon as I have this amount of money, then I'll be able to retire. Oh man, if I, if I only made $20 more a week, or $200 more a week, or $2,000 more a week, then I'd be happy. That would make me happy. Just add a zero, and then I'm good. If I only made more money an hour, or had the high-paying career, things would go smoother. Churches even buy into this idea that ministry's more effective and God-glorifying if there's more buck for our bang. Uh, are you guilty of having the Philip mentality? Do you think more money will bring more happiness and satisfaction? See, in the end, Scripture seems to paint a different picture. Nowhere in Scripture uh, do we see the Philip mentality actually proving to provide something called happiness. It doesn't work. In fact, the opposite is often true. More money usually brings more headaches and problems than actually solving them. And so some people will spiritualize this and say, well, if I had more money, then I'd support missionaries, and then I'd start giving to the church, and, and, and we can fall into that um, trouble. The truth is we can be giving now. Even if it's a dollar a week, we can be giving to the Lord, and we can be saving now. And so notice verse 8. Verse 8 says, one of his disciples, Andrew, I want you to circle his name, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. I wish Andrew stopped there. I wish that's all he said. Here's a lad who has a, a little lunchbox. Jesus, isn't that great? But notice what Andrew goes on to say. He says, but what are they among so many? And then Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now, I had you circle Andrew because Andrew is an awesome example for us. Andrew is someone who's always bringing people to Jesus. And he does a great job here bringing this young boy in his little lunch, except that he has that statement of unbelief, except. And in our lives, guys, there are so many little accepts that we throw out there. Lord, I pray that you would do this, except if you don't want to, it's fine. And I think sometimes we limit um, what we should be praying because of our unbelief. We trust in God's will, but we should be praying. Pray prayers that only God can answer. And so the loaves um, that, that, that they bring him, they bring Jesus here, are not our loaves of bread. I was walking through the grocery store this week and just looking at the variety of loaves, and I even thought maybe I'll bring him up here and maybe distribute some loaves. And I'm not Jesus, so I decided against it. Um, but I thought, you know, bring up a current loaf versus a barley loaf. And they're very small, very small little loaves, flat barley cakes, about the size of like a small pancake. When your wife's cooking pancakes and you're like, come on, honey, like be generous here. And it's just that little, small 
uh, like half dollar, well, I guess not that small, but it's a little, you know, it's a little pancake. Uh, not only that, but the, um, the fish, many scholars believe, were these little pickled sardine-sized fish, so very small little fish. So when they bring these to Jesus, you know, Andrew's almost embarrassed. You know, I would kind of be as well, like, hey, Jesus, <laughs> someone has food, <laughs> but uh, punchline, here it is, and it, it could have fit in both of your hands, right? So now we're going to feed this entire crowd of people. But I, I love that, that Jesus says, have the people sit down. If you've ever been out of cash and you go through McDonald's, what do you order? You order off the dollar menu, you order the Happy Meal, you're ordering the kids meal, right, because you're just kind of broke. And you're like, all right, we're going to have everyone in the family. Our family of four is going to eat one Happy Meal, right? It's not enough to uh, be sufficient. But Jesus says, I'm going to do something here. So he has the people sit down. He's not worried about the deficiency. He miraculously makes even the little that's brought, he makes it work. I love that. I love that picture that we see biblically. Moses brought a little staff, and, and the Lord said, well, I can part the Red Sea with that. We know Mary brought a little jar of perfume, but it was used to anoint the body of Jesus. We remember David bringing just a few little rocks, and yet he was able to slay a giant with that. We see Mary saying, you know, I'm just this one little woman, and yet God used her uh, to bring about the incarnation. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea said, you know, I have a little tomb. It's not really much, and yet it was borrowed, right, for the weekend. Watchman Nee says this, the meeting of need is not dependent on the supply in hand, but on the blessing of the Lord resting on the supply. Jesus never said look to the supply, but look to the Savior. And so if you're here this morning and you're struggling financially, you're discouraged, you're despondent, we don't look to the resources or lack thereof, we look to the Redeemer. And see, the false, the false gospel of the prosperity gospel has wrecked us a little bit, so we even, I even feel anxious even talking like that, because I'm afraid maybe some of us jump the gun and go, okay, great, so I just need to I just need to do this and then God will bless everything that I have, right? And so I'm scared to even teach on a passage like this because I'm afraid that some of the false doctrine out there has kind of thrown us off. But there's still an element that God is our provider and we can trust him and we can rest in him and have faith that he will provide for us. Don't let, don't let the false gospels um, rip you off. And so Jesus says, what are those things? It's a small lunch, but in my hands I can do everything. And there's nothing impossible. And so even though this is embarrassing, notice what Jesus does in verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, another gospel says he broke the bread and then distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, I need your attention for a little bit. We eat meals a little bit different. So in your mind right now, you're picturing people sitting down, they're having a picnic, and people are throwing a Frisbee and a football. That's what you're picturing, right, in your mind, maybe right now, and everyone's just kind of huddled together. But in uh, ancient Israel, meals were actually, as you would eat, you would eat them around a low table shaped like a U. And you'd have the guest of honor in the middle, and they would take the food, it was brought to them, and they would distribute it out around to the very ends of the table. And the seat of honor uh, were always closest to that, that person of honor in the center of the U. That's where Jesus would have sat at the Last uh, Supper. And so I believe that Jesus may have, we don't know that from the text here, but I want to maybe throw this, uh, this kind of hypothesis out there that perhaps everyone is seated in these small little groups uh, of, of maybe several dozen people in U-shapes 
the disciples are walking, giving it to the person of honor, coming back for more, and there's more bread and fish, and then they give it, and they come back, and there's more. And so as they distribute it uh, to everyone, uh, notice that it says, everyone ate as much as they wanted. I love this. Jesus is sufficient, not just to meet the need, everyone gets to eat, but even exceed the need, where everyone gets to eat, and there's even some left over. Notice our third point this morning, Jesus is sufficient to preserve. Verse 12, it says, when they were filled, this is the, the people were filled to the full, they were, hung, they were no longer hungry, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain. I love this, so that nothing is lost, so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Jesus began this thing with not even enough to fill a basket. And now by the end of it, there's not just a basket full of bread and fish. There are how many? Did you catch it? There's 12. How many disciples does Jesus have? 12. Hmm, I think something's going on here. Okay. Uh, Jesus here is basically showing his disciples something miraculous. Jesus would have uh, brought, they bring this lunch to him. He would have looked at it and they would have scoffed. They would have said, yeah. What is that among so many? How are we able to do this? And yet in the end, Jesus goes, hey, Philip, here's your basket. Hey, Peter, here's your basket. Andrew, you were close, bro. Here's your basket. So all of them, as they take their baskets, they're looking down going, I am a bonehead. I can't believe I didn't trust in Jesus. What am I doing? And so Jesus, listen, he's not only preserving what was miraculously provided, but notice the next two verses. This is very insightful. You guys gotta catch this. Verse 14. Then the men, those who had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world, okay? The men see the sign and they realize, oh, Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18. If you are here last week, we talked about that, but I want you to jot that verse down, Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18. You guys need to read that, incredibly important. So as Jesus does this sign, they realize that's him. He's the prophet that, that Moses said, listen to him. He's a greater prophet than even Moses. Now, it says in verse 15 that therefore when Jesus perceived they're about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Okay, what's happening here? They realize he's the prophet. And it says by force they came to take him and make him their king. Uh, there was a well-known zealot uprising that was stirring in this part of Galilee, and even one of Jesus' disciples, Simon, was known as the zealot. So he was part of this political uprising. He's kind of part of the Tea Party, right? He was like, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna overthrow, we're gonna rise up and be political against our oppression uh, of Rome. And so they came, they started this kind of, this crowd um, uh, to come and grab Jesus and march into Jerusalem and make him king. And so Jesus realizes that and he heads uphill, uh, both literally and figuratively. Jesus, it says, goes up the mountain. Uh, and not only just the mountain physically, but at this point Jesus could have been made king, but he doesn't do that. He ascends the hill towards Calvary, towards the cross, and away from the throne. Uh, Jesus didn't come in his first coming to set up his political kingdom. He came to lay down his life as sacrificial lamb of God. And so I love that Jesus doesn't allow any of the bread and fish to be wasted. He doesn't allow his mission to be wasted, but preserves it. But not only that, Jesus here 
preserves the integrity of the gospel. Uh, Why? Because he doesn't give in to the selfish desires of men, but he performs this miracle, shows that he is Messiah, and then later goes in to this incredible discourse about how this is all a picture, this bread, this miracle is all a picture of the gospel. Augustine said this, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and we try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it's a perverse distortion of the image of the creator in us. He says all these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in him. See, the most important verse of this entire section may have been one that we skimmed over. Look back at verse four. Verse four says, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Why is that possibly the most important uh, verse in this chapter? Uh, well, see, what we just read is, is, has very little to do with feeding hungry bellies and having little lunches brought by little boys, even though we read that in Sunday school and we just studied it briefly. You see, this miracle is a picture of the gospel itself. If you read ahead, you'll see Jesus talking about himself being the bread of life. And he begins comparing himself next week to manna in the wilderness. And where Moses lacked, this is where Jesus steps in. And so Jesus is saying, I'm a true and better Moses. Uh, on, on the screen, John chapter 1, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We'll see that next week. Fascinating study that will blow our minds as Jesus connects himself to Moses and says, I'm greater than Moses. Through Moses, God provided manna for the children of Israel. Uh, It was to be gathered and not wasted. And here, uh, Jesus provides for them. John chapter six, verse 35 later, next week we'll look at it. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus here makes the crowd sit or recline. He takes the loaves, he gives thanks, he breaks them, and then he distributes them. And that's probably exactly what it looked like as Jesus at the Last Supper took the bread, broke it, gave thanks, and distributed it to his disciples. It's probably uh, in Luke 24 when he sat down with the two disciples after the road to Emmaus, and they had heard that awesome inductive Bible study about him in the Old Testament. And it says that he broke the bread and he prayed, and they suddenly saw, hey, that's Jesus, and then he was taken from their sight. Uh, I love that... Everyone eats, everyone is satisfied, nothing goes to waste, and all the disciples gather in so that nothing is lost. That's a reminder for us, church, that everyone who is entrusted to the Son would not be lost. John chapter 6, verse 39 says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. We're going to learn more of that in the weeks to come. But Jesus, in this Eucharistic meal, is showing us that he alone can completely satisfy, that he is enough, he's sufficient, and we're to receive Jesus uh, into our life. Uh, But as Jesus sends the people away here and goes walking up the mountain, right here at this exact point in verse 15, this would have been a huge low point for the disciples. It doesn't pretty much get any more rock bottom uh, than, than this. Our fourth point here is that Jesus is sufficient to protect. And what's happening now in the minds of the disciples is they're thinking, what? This is our time. We're following this guy to take over the kingdom of Israel. And and here he is with that opportunity, and he's slipping away. And where did he go? And he's sending us back down the mountain. And all this crowd that we could have marched in and had our insurrection revolt 
It's lost now. These people are going home. And so verse 16 says, when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and they got into the boat and they went over the sea toward Capernaum and it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. This is a very down, discouraging moment in the life of the disciples. Uh, so they go down to the sea, they get into a boat and they start heading across the Sea of Galilee. So uh, if it's all right with you, I wanna take a minute and, and, and just understand the Sea of Galilee for a minute to make more sense of this story, okay? A little geography and science lesson for us. Are you guys good with that? Uh, if you're not, sorry, we're doing it anyway. So the Sea of Galilee is um, it's a harp-shaped lake. You guys see the little harp? It's kind of shaped uh, like a harp. Um, in fact, the Old Testament word for the Sea of Galilee is Kinnereth, uh, Kinnereth, which is actually translated harp or lyre. So it's uh, known as the Harp Lake. Uh, it's a sea uh, or lake. And uh, basically, it's part of an inland basin that's about 650 feet below sea level, uh, eventually getting as low as 1,300 feet, which is the, sea, uh, the Dead Sea. By the way, that is um, a lot lower than even Death Valley, which is a pokey 282 feet below sea level. Okay, even the Sea of Galilee is, is uh, like double as, as um, low in elevation. So the Dead Sea, as it trickles down below the Sea of Galilee through the Jordan, is the lowest point on the surface of the earth, the physical earth. You have the lowest point underneath the ocean, which is Challenger's Deep and the Marianas Trench, that's really low. Uh, and so with that low elevation on the Sea of Galilee, you also have mountains on the western shore that, that uh, are about 2,000 feet high. By the way, church, we're in Florida. That's a mountain. I don't know if you've ever seen that. That's called a mountain. Isn't that great? Uh, we don't have those. We have palm trees, but not mountains. So that's about 2,000 feet. On the other side, on the eastern shore, we call them the Golan Heights today, very popular in the news. Those are about 4,000 feet high. Okay, so in the afternoon, let me get your attention. Cool air from the Mediterranean kind of blows across that low-lying, low-elevation basin. This cool air blows in, and it collides with the lower hot air and forces up. You remember this from fourth grade? Uh, we learned this in fourth grade class, science. You've got that cool air blowing in, and it pushes up the warm air, the hot air, and that causes kind of a cold front or precipitation. So those kind of collide, and now we've got uh, a lot of... Um, Storms. By the way, that's what happens here in Lakewood Ranch. I don't know if you noticed. The cool air coming off the Gulf uh, collides with the hot air that's further inland. That's why right past 75, you have that line of storms that you always kind of see. There's always that, those thunderstorms. Um, and you don't see them in West Bradenton as much as that huge cloud of storms. Someone's like, I live in West Bradenton. Okay, well, most of the time they're more east. So if you were a fisherman or someone out on the water on the Sea of Galilee, these storms were very deadly, very dangerous, and they just cropped up out of nowhere. Usually in the evening, they, would, uh, they had no coast guard and their boats were not uh, you know, as seaworthy as our boats today. And so very violent, very unpredictable. Look at verse 18 with that in mind. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. You're in the boat, Jesus isn't with you, you're totally discouraged. Your dinner was bread and fish and uh, it was a miracle, but man, you just missed a huge opportunity. And now there's a wind blowing. And you can see them rowing against the wind. They're straining. It says in verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, right, not minutes, miles, that's a lot of rowing, and you're rowing into the wind. They saw Jesus, verse 19, walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were, <laughs> understatement of the year, afraid. They were afraid. Uh, wouldn't you be afraid? You're in a boat late at night. 
It's windy, there's a storm, you have no life vest, no flotation device, and it's not sunrise yet, it's, in, it's that kind of that three or four o'clock in the morning, and suddenly there's a ghost, what seems to be a ghost, walking to you out on the water. So the word for afraid here in verse 19 is phobeo. We obtain the word phobia from it. It doesn't mean to be a little bit anxious, a nail biter. It means to be absolutely terrified, okay, spooked. Now, I love that Moses parts the Red Sea with a staff, and yet Jesus, he doesn't part the, red, the, uh, the sea here, the Sea of Galilee, but he demonstrates his authority over creation, over weather, over physics, over space and time, and walks on the water. No one on earth has that authority. John MacArthur wrote uh, about someone who said that they could walk on water. I love this quote. He said, the old mystic, Rao, a Hindu holy man in 1966, believed he could walk on water. He was so confident in his own spiritual power that he announced he would perform the feat before a live audience. He sold tickets at $100 a piece. Bombay's elite turned out en masse to behold the spectacle. The event was held in a large garden with a deep pool. A crowd of more than 600 had assembled. The white-bearded yogi appeared in flowing robes and stepped confidently to the edge of the pool. And then he goes on to say this. He paused to pray silently. A reverent hush fell on the crowd. Rao opened his eyes, looked heavenward, and boldly stepped forward. With an awkward splash, he disappeared beneath the water. Sputtering and red-faced, the holy man struggled to pull himself out of the water. Trembling with rage, he shook his finger at the silent, embarrassed crowd. One of you, he bellowed indignantly, is an unbeliever. <laughs> Interesting. No one has that ability to step out and walk on water except Jesus. And so notice what Jesus says to his disciples, verse 20. He said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I. It says, then they willingly, <laughs> there's another understatement, they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. At first they're terrified, but then they're willingly, quickly receiving him into the boat. And as soon as they do, John points out that the boat immediately arrives at the desired destination. Now, the doubters would say, well, Jesus was walking on a sandbar. And so, you know, that, that's how he did it. I would say, well, then, how come other gospel writers say that Peter fell in? So what are you talking about? Anyway, and so Jesus here in this miracle demonstrates, listen, to his disciples, he's fully sufficient to protect us in the storm. Not from the storm, but in the storm. Storms are often indicative or metaphorical for trials that you and I endure. And notice that Jesus is not trying to keep them from experiencing it. In fact, he sent them into it, directly into the past, knowing what was coming. And in the same way, Jesus doesn't promise to keep us from the storm, but to keep us in the midst of it. He never abandons us in our trials. No, like these 12 frightened followers, Jesus speaks to us sometimes in the midst of the storm. And the disciples surely came to understand Jeremiah 32, 17, which says this, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm, and nothing is too difficult for you. See, often we don't fully grasp that verse until we go through the difficult times. A lot of times we don't understand the provision of the Lord until the lack of provision. And often God works in that kind of 11th hour where we're waiting and we're hoping and we're watching and we're believing. And like Abraham, we start trying to produce results in our own flesh. 
and a bunch of Ishmaels start being born in our life, right? Rather than just sitting back and saying, I trust you, Lord, and I believe you can do this. Now, I want to spend a few minutes together and kind of unpack three points of application from this section of Scripture. So if you're taking note, I'm going to put them on the screen. I want you to write these down to remember these this week. First of all, your resources are limited, but God's resources are unlimited, okay? So whether it's 200 denarii or a stronger group of rowers in your boat, uh, the disciples in this came to understand through both of those situations that their resources were incredibly limited, but that didn't stop God from doing miraculous work on their behalf. I like this idea here. Never underestimate the power of a small lunch given to a big God to be used for his great glory. I love that. He can and will use whatever we're willing to offer him today, and he'll make much of it. Today, you don't need to raise your hand. Your resources, guys, they're limited. They're limited. For example, your time. Your time is limited. Uh, You could say, well, um, I don't know what to do with my time. You know, we have 168 hours every week. And as a teenager, half of that is spent sleeping. Uh, As a hard worker, half of that is spent working. Uh, Much of that is spent scrolling on Facebook, right? Uh, But what if we just gave one hour a week? What if we gave them one hour? What What if we gave them two hours a week? Our time is limited, but what if we offered just a little bit more? What could God do with that limited time that we offered him, who is outside of time itself? What could he do with just a little more time that we gave him? What about your money? Your money, church, is limited. And what if you gave him a portion of your income uh, if you aren't already doing that? What if we gave the Lord just a little bit more than we gave, uh, than we're currently giving him? Could, could he, the one who can do exceedingly abundantly above anything we can ask or imagine, immeasurably more, could he do something and expand the little resource that we give him and use it in greater ways? He's doing that, by the way, in this church. Someone asked uh, Robert Morrison, the first Protestant missionary to China, they said, do you really expect to make an impact on that great land, China? And he said, no, but I expect God to. Hudson Taylor, who followed in his footsteps, said this, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Uh, He went on one time and said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. You know that God's with you today. You can rest in his providing work. And your resources are limited, but his resources are not, okay? Secondly, second application point, um, following Jesus, I just wanna make this point, This may be for someone here. Following Jesus does not mean using him for our own purposes, okay? The men in the crowd made the connection that Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke of, but rather than submit to him, what do they do? They yank him and make him do something that they wanted him to do. Right from the second verse of this chapter, we see the motives of these men were not to follow Jesus because of his message, but because of his miracles. They wanted the works, but not the word, okay? A.W. Pink points out that these men had a misunderstanding of Jesus. They proclaimed him prophet and wanted to make him king, but they didn't understand him as priest. That Jesus had to be not just prophet, not just king, but priest. He had to step in and to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And the disciples didn't even get that until the resurrection. And so this miracle was kind of helping to sink in this lesson. That guy, hey guys, this is who I am. You don't follow me for your own purposes. And so we too could be guilty of that same mistake of claiming to follow Jesus and yet merely using him 
for our own purposes. And then when we see him not fulfilling our dreams, we get discouraged, we get depressed, we get despondent. No, no, no. To follow Jesus, listen, is to trust his promises, his provision, his plan, his protection. To follow Jesus, church, is to submit our fears and our failures and our misconceptions about him to him and then trust that he's able to do work on our behalf. He's able to feed a multitude with a lunch and he's able uh, to walk on the very water that threatens our lives. His purpose, church, will prevail, not ours. It's not in the power of your prayer. It's not in the yearning of your worship. It's not, well, I raised my hands today higher than last week. Now he owes me a blessing. No, it's not in our own will. It's in his will. And yet he chooses to accomplish his plans on earth by using broken vessels like us. Isn't that crazy? It's awesome. And so remember that, that we're not here to use God for our own purposes. We're here to follow him and submit our lives to him. And there may be some of you today that are unbroken. You are unyielded. And man, that is a scary place to be, to profess Christ and yet be unyielded, unbroken before him. I pray that today you would yield, you would be broken before him. Thirdly, the third application point is that storms are inevitable. They're inevitable. And it is who you receive in your boat that makes all the difference. That's what matters. See, in the original Greek in verse 20, verse 20, I want you to circle this. When it says, it is I, that's, that's actually not accurate. It should be translated, Jesus said, here it is in the Greek, ego I me, I am. Jesus says to his disciples, I love this, and this is our new series starting next week. Jesus says, I am, I am. And next week we'll see he is the bread of life. See, everything changed for the disciples because of Jesus. Their whole predicament changes when he shows up. Here they are, three and a half miles out, buffeted against the wind, against the waves, trying their hardest, and in their own strength, they're failing. Does that remind you of you? You're just out there despondent, discouraged, things didn't turn out the way you thought, and here you are rowing and trying, and the wind's blowing against you, now you're terrified because you're misunderstanding things, and you're freaking out, and then Jesus gets in the boat, and everything changes. Why? Why did Jesus allow them to go through this? Like, why was this a thing? Why didn't Jesus just get in the boat with them and say, okay, guys, let me, let me read some passages to you from the Old Testament and kind of clarify, like, why I did that and why I didn't let him take me by force? Why, why did he allow them to endure this? Well, Mark's gospel gives us a little clue. Look on the screen. Mark 6, 50 and 52 says, they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Notice verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Huh. See, church, the, the disciples like us had hard hearts. Their hearts were not soft, pliable, moldable. And so Jesus was able to do more with a broken piece of barley than he could with these men because their heart was hard, their mind was closed, their eyes were fixed on the wrong things. I wanna invite the band up this morning and close our time together in song. And go ahead and close your Bibles with me and uh, just get settled. If I can have your undivided attention as we close this morning. Don't get distracted by any means. I wanna kind of uh, bring this home. I have a pastor's challenge for us this morning, and I try to do that every week so that you can walk away forgetting everything that you heard at least capture something, because I know we have short 
attention spans. And I, I need to just hear kind of one thing. Like, like let me walk away with one thing. Like, what, what's, the, what's the nugget? What's the, what's the take-home point? Here, here it is. No matter how small, how insignificant, how puny, how worthless you feel your life may be, my pastor's challenge for us this morning is just to offer our life to the Lord this morning to be used for his glory. Just to offer it. Say, Lord, what would you do with my life? I read about Sir Michael Costa who was conducting a rehearsal with a, f- a huge orchestra. He brought in a big chorus and halfway through the session, this orchestra is going to town full volume. It was that high crescendo and the trumpets were blaring, the drum was going, the chorus was singing at the top of their lungs. And one of the person in the orchestra, the least of the orchestra was the piccolo player. I don't know if you know what a piccolo, it's like a little baby flute. And the piccolo player thought to himself, what am I doing? Nobody can hear me. I'm not making any difference. And so he stopped. I, I've been in band before. And if you don't know your parts, you stop playing, but you pretend to play, right? I'm just playing trumpet, mm-hmm, not actually playing anything. And so the piccolo player started doing that, just doing the motions, moving his fingers, pretending to take deep breaths, but not making a sound. And within moments, the conductor stopped the entire performance and he said, wait, stop, stop, where's the piccolo? You see, it was missed by the ear of the most important person of all. And here this morning, you may perceive that you're not significant, but look what Jesus did with a few crusty pieces of barley and two pieces of sardines. There is no one here too unworthy for God to use you. I've said this before, you might be too big for God to use you. Big in your own eyes, but you're not too small. God wants to use every one of us, each and every one of us for his glory. And so if that's true, if every one of us can be used by God, then listen church, we need to have different eyes for each other. We need to look at one another, not with disdain and complaint and criticism, but with love and to say, I need to be like Andrew. I need to find someone in this church that I could bring to Jesus, because every one of us can be used greatly by the Lord. There's a tale of an old German schoolmaster, and every time he walked into his room, he would take off his hat and he would bow ceremoniously to his students. And one of the other teachers said, why are you bowing to your, your students? And the German schoolmaster said, you never know who these students will become. And amazingly, one of those students became Martin Luther. And I don't think anyone has been used more greatly in Christianity than the great reformer, maybe other than the Apostle Paul. And yet, even as a young boy, someone recognized that's gonna be a person of significance. Do you here this morning have eyes that see others in that same type of light? Do you see yourself like that and say, I could be used by the Lord significantly? Or are you afraid? I want us to bow our heads this morning. I wanna remind you, Jesus is sufficient to not just meet your need, but to exceed it. And he's not doing that for your glory, He's doing it for his glory. And he chooses to involve us in his great plan. And so maybe you need to be broken like those pieces of bread. Today, you need to be broken before you can be used. And this is a weird prayer request, and it's not in my notes, but maybe you need to be broken this morning and you need the humility to just raise your hand and say, Pastor, will you pray that I'd be broken to be more effective? And I know by even asking that, your pride's gonna say, don't raise your hand. But I'm just gonna offer it to you this morning. Is there someone here that says, please pray that I'll be broken? 
because I'd rather be broken in the hand of the man who can do all things than to keep my hand at my side and realize that he could overlook me and use someone else. Raise your hand. I see hands going up everywhere. Be used for God's glory. Father, I pray for those who have raised their hand. I pray for me as my hand is raised, that you'd break me, that you'd break us and use us for your glory. Lord, this story is not about hungry tummies being fed. It's about the gospel, that Jesus is sufficient. He is the bread of life, and we're to receive him. We'll never hunger, we'll never thirst. And we thank you for that truth this morning. May we be broken before you. May we be those who are used greatly for your glory. We thank you that you can use our lives, that we can build our lives upon your word. And so, Lord, as we sing that truth together this morning, do that transforming work by your Holy Spirit of breaking down barriers and walls and excuses and selfishness and pride. And Lord, let that broken vessel have a light within it that shines through. It shines the light of the glory of God in us. We're broken jars of clay. And we thank you that you are everything in us. We love you. We commit the rest of our time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship together. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Calvary Chapel meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. Tune in next week as we continue our study of the Gospel of John and learn who Jesus is.